Hey, good evening, everybody. Good evening and welcome to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 159 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, uh, session number 35? I keep forgetting the number. Uh, we've been in it. In, yeah, I got 35. 35 is, is my count. So we'll see uh, in Council of Elrond. Um, and tonight we get to the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman. So we are uh, to uh, to an exciting moment here. Uh, in uh, the accounts here this evening. Um, so uh, I wanted to start to this week is the last week of our uh, uh, fall fundraiser at Signum University. So I wanted to, of course, talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, and let me actually just start off uh, with that, actually, uh, and just say again, thank you to everybody who has made donations. We've had many donations coming in over the last few weeks, not to mention, of course, all of you. Uh, and we have over 130 of you uh, who have been making monthly donations. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, that have been continuously running. Um, really, really grateful for all of the support that we've we've raised over sixty thousand dollars so far. Um, our goal for the year is seventy five thousand, so we still have a little bit of a ways to go, um, but we are getting close to our goal. And as I say, I'm enormously grateful. And I would just ask anyone who, you know, who watches the show and who really appreciates what we do and has enjoyed this, I would just ask that you would consider, especially, I'm speaking also to those who are watching this asynchronously. Um, don't, you know, I, I, d d whether or not the donation comes in during the fall fundraising campaign or not, it's part of our annual fund. This is just the time of year in which I take time out to talk about it and ask you guys uh, uh, to support us. But of course, your support is always needed and greatly appreciated at any time. So if you're watching this asynchronously or listening asynchron asynchronously, whenever it is uh, that you hear this message, I'd ask that you consider making a donation to support Signum University to keep things running uh, and to help us to move forward because we're moving forward into really exciting times. Um, and uh, that is the thing I wanted to come back to. I've been talking for the last three weeks about different problems that confront higher education. Uh, and, you know, these are all things that Signum University has either set out to try to make a change in or things that we just, by the nature of the kind of organization that we do, we, uh, you know, we, we, we have established a different, a new species of, of, of university. Um, and, uh, you know, some of these issues we've just sort of avoided. Um, today... And tomorrow, during my Wednesday night class, the last two of my ten problems that I uh, have been wanting to emphasize are problems, not problems that confront all of higher education. Well, they're endemic to all of higher education, but they're not necessarily problems that university that you know are, are pushing universities to the edge of of bankruptcy or anything like that. But it's still, they're still serious and pervasive problems, and both of them have to do with the humanities and the teaching of the humanities. And this, of course, as you probably know, is the the area that Signum is primarily moving into. This is where we feel uh, most clearly our call for uh, uh, for intervention, essentially, our, our, uh, our, where, where we feel we can make the most focused difference in higher education moving forward. And we're really excited about our new humanities initiatives uh, and what, we're, uh, what we have been, what we have begun to accomplish and what we're going to accomplish. But 
just to kind of contextualize a little bit <clears throat> about the humanities problem that I'm talking about, this has its roots not in anything that I've perceived uh, lately. It has its roots back in problems that I had since I became an English professor, basically. Um, there were a lot of awkward conversations that I recall <clears throat> from my earlier days as an English professor um, with students and especially with students' parents. Um, I often was a, a, an advisor to incoming first years when they came to the school. And, um, you know, they're trying to decide what courses to take and what majors they might want to pursue. And uh, many of them, of course, who were paired with me were paired with me because they had expressed a potential interest in majoring in English. Um, and so sometimes, especially, you know, at the beginning uh, of the program, I'd be sitting down with their parents and uh, talking about majors and what they should be doing and all that kind of thing. And uh, the parents were often uh, hostile to the idea of their children becoming English majors. And of course, the, the question that they would ask uh, when uh, trying to you know, decide what, you know, help their kill, kids decide what they should major in was, well, what are you going to do with that? Right now, I found this conversation always very frustrating. Um, I, I was frustrated by it, but I have to admit that I didn't at the time see the full significance of this, like the full implications, both of this question that people were asking and of the 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 whole sort of situation that that created it. Um, I my initial frustration was just in trying to answer the question. Um, and the frustration comes from the, the, the irony that was always perceptible to me, right? Where on the one hand, the question of what are you going to do with an English major um, seemed to me like a, 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 an almost ridiculous question. Like, what can't you do with an English major? The kinds of skills that you develop as an English major, as any humanities major, are almost universally applicable. I mean, these skills are absolutely... Uh, are absolutely... They will help you in anything you do. I mean, the, the ability to be a clearer communicator, to be a good and thoughtful reader, um, to you know the the kind of uh, the kind of emotional intelligence that you build. There's so many of these really important people skills uh, that are developed um, by the humanities in general and by English majors in particular. Um, and it was just so obvious to me that there is absolutely nothing that your child could do where these things would not be an enormous benefit and an enormous advantage to them. So on the one hand. And I felt like the answer is just obvious. It's like a no-brainer. But at the same time, it was equally clear that the context of the question was not how can the skills learned from the English major be broadly applied? The question was really what job specifically does this major qualify or prepare my child for, right? Um, what jobs... What, what, what career doors are going to be opened by the mere fact of being an English major? And that, of course, is a much more awkward question, right? Because the answer is not very many. And those that it does open are not actually very highly paid either. Um, so 
that was that's it, it, it was frustrating, frustrating because there was like the answer that I tried to give and wanted to give and, the, you know, and genuinely believed in. And there was the answer that uh, there was the question that I, you know, the, the way that anyway, it was just a really frustrating situation. Um, and I was at the time feeling like the whole situation was kind of wrong footed in some, you know, that like the, the, like my whole discipline, the whole situation was just kind of like happening on the wrong premises on the wrong foot. And, um, but I didn't have a clear answer to it. I didn't have a real clear understanding of why I was so frustrated by that. Um, since then, um, uh, since then, um, I've come to understand it a little bit better uh, and be because I've come to see the bigger picture a little bit and how this fits in with the state of higher education right now. And this is why I included this, not only because it's an important part of what Signum is doing and building as we move forward, but also because um, there was... Uh, as I say, I've, I've I've come to a bigger understanding of how this fits into some of the general problems um, of higher education. Um, so... My, um, the, the, the bigger problem really, um, is that higher education has become increasingly to mean what a higher education degree is or how it's understood by, for, by so many people is preparation for a particular job. Higher education is simply job training essentially, right? You, you, you get a degree, not in order to educate yourself, not in order to improve yourself, not in order to, you know, provide yourself with, you know, a, a, you know, an array of resources, which then you can apply in various different ways in order to shape your own career. Um, you know, the own, the thinking of what that word actually means, right? Like the, you know, the path and trajectory that you're going to follow through your life. That's no longer how people view it anymore. Now people view it as there should be, you know, there should be a, a, a specific list of jobs that you will become qualified for if you get X degree, you know, wh whatever degree it is, whatever major it is that you're, you know, field of study you're looking to, you're looking to pursue. That has become the way that people tend uh, to think about higher education and let me just say, I'm not making fun of anybody who thinks about it that way. It is very understandable. This is a situation that higher education has created by its high tuition levels. The, what they ask, the financial input that they ask from families is so high that families are right to say, what is my return on investment? If I am going to pay this much, if, you know, my kid is going to accrue this much debt, it had darn well better be worth it, right? Show me the money. Show me where this is heading. And you better show me a straight path, right? I want to know if I'm going to pay this much money, I'm going to, I want to know that it's going to be worth something. I'm going to, I want to know exactly how this is going to lead me directly, uh, you know, lead my kid directly uh, to a place where they can earn some serious money in order to, uh, uh, you know, begin to, to recoup the debt, uh, from, uh, from their education. It's, that's, that's a very natural and really an entirely sensible, um, question to ask, but it has created this entire, this sign very significant shift in the market of higher education. And one of the, there are many implications of this, but one of the, um, 
one of the problems, one of the major issues that it has created is this problem with the humanities. The humanities have been put, therefore, into a really awkward position, right? Um, where they get marked, because now, like, if that's the question, if your only evaluative question is, show me how this degree that my child is going to get is going to lead my child to, you know, a, a high paying job. No, the humanities can't show, we'll never be able to show that, right? That's not how we roll in the humanities. The humanities have, have never, never, ever in the history of academic study been designed as the high road to really high paying, high level jobs. Like that's just not how the humanities work. That's not what they're about. Um, we think about what the role of the humanities always was, right? The humanities have always been understood to be essential, right? That's where you start. Go back to the medieval liberal arts, right? The trivium, the first three of the seven liberal arts, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. This is the, the hum humanities foundation, which came first for a reason. Every educated person, every person who was going to go on to have any kind of public life, right? Any kind of, any kind of public or intellectual career was expected to begin with a foundation of the skills that you develop through the study of the humanities. Um, it's not the end goal, right? Again, nor is it professional training, right? It is this sort of baseline, which enables everything else. The current mindset this idea of higher education as specific job preparation um, throws the whole thing out of whack. Um, and I'll talk tomorrow night in problem number 10, little sneak preview of one of the implications of that. Um, you know, one of the consequences of that throwing out of whack. But here's the problem. The problem is that... Um, it's not the whole story. The whole story is not just this shift in higher education. The problem is also within the humanities itself. This is not a story of how the humanities are victimized. It's also a problem uh, that the humanities have themselves um, worked themselves into. Um, if higher education has lost sight of like the trivium and its important role, well, so is the humanities to an extent. The humanities don't like to think of themselves as something like a means to an end, right? They don't like to think of themselves as an introductory course to prepare people to go on and learn other things and do other things. Um, they don't want to think about that that way. They want to be an end in themselves, right? Um, and they teach humanities disciplines as if they were an end to themselves. Because you think about it, what do the humanities teach? How does an English major work? If you are major in English um, at some school, especially at a liberal arts school, okay, how does it work? Well, you study as if literary scholarship is for itself is the point, right? Like that, you know, the, the, the curriculum of an English major and I'm speaking of English majors because that's what I know best and uh, from my own experience. Um, an English major, the curriculum of an English major is designed to, you know, make a student into a well-grounded literary scholar. Um, as if becoming a literary scholar, as if preparing students to become professional literary scholars were the point of the degree uh, that we're, you know, that we're putting students through. Um, but that's not 
really, I mean, what the speech that I tried to give to parents about the universal applicability of the English major, that's, that's the truth, right? The truth is we know, we know that a tiny percentage of the students who are studying to be English majors are going to go pro in the humanities, are going to become professional literary scholars, right? What percent? Two, one percent, two percent, tiny percent of students um, are going to actually go on and become professionals in that field. The vast majority of the students who are studying English are going to go off and work some other job somewhere else in the world where they will be tremendously benefited by having been an English major, but their English major won't have been preparing them for that. It spent all of its time preparing them to be a literary scholar, which they certainly will not be. Um, so what are we doing? Why are we doing it this way? So as I say, hum the humanities and the way that humanities programs have been designed are also creating a part of the problem. Um, and so it's kind of not shocking that, you know, although obviously I disagree very strongly when an institution looks at humanities departments and says, you know what, this is not useful. Let's trim down or even cut out this humanities program, it doesn't do any good, right? It's not, you know, on the one hand, obviously, I disagree with that approach. But at the same time, when you accept the structure of the system, it's hard to argue, right? We don't, in fact, need to prepare all of our students to be literary scholars or professional historians or professional philosophers. They're not going to do it, right? Um, and so why should we do it that way, right? Why should we teach it that way? The humanities have, in this sense, been kind of marginalizing themselves, certainly not doing themselves any favors. Um, Signum is building a new humanities program, and it's not just a new humanities program. It's going to be a new kind of humanities program. Um, we are building an applied humanities program a program in which we will teach and students can enjoy the humanities, a program in which you study literature and history and philosophy because it's awesome and it is fun and you learn a lot and you enjoy learning a lot. But the point of it is not to become a professional scholar in the humanities. We want to accommodate that, of course, as well, because though the percentage might be small, there will be some who will become professional humanities scholars and that's great. I can testified that that's a fun calling as well. But we want to focus on preparing students for actually entering the world uh, equipped and well-equipped with the skills that they learn from being humanities majors. Um, and we want to, show, to build a program, an applied humanities program, that clearly demonstrates to the students, first and foremost, but also to their parents and also to their future employers, what exactly the students get from studying the humanities. Um, this is the kind of humanities program that Signum University is currently building. Now, if you would like to learn more about this, um, on Saturday, this Saturday the 17th, I'm going to be giving the State of the University Address, the traditional fall State of the University Address, where I talk about where we are at Signum and where we're headed. And where we're headed is going to be the particular focus this year. Um, I'm going to be giving something like a campus tour of Signum University from the year 2022. I'm going to be looking a couple years in the future and walking people through 
what Signum does, what our programs are going to look like and how our programs operate and why our programs operate, what it is that Signum is up to and what we're about and where we, what we're going to be trying to capture, the kind of, uh, the kind of institution that we plan to be and the kind of good that we are hoping to do for people in lots of different places and of lots of different kinds by 2022. Um, so you can uh, join me there. The plan is for that to begin at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time. Um, the main thing for those of you who are watching here tonight, the best way to tune in um, uh, is on Twitch. We're going to have a separate registration, uh, a GoToWebinar registration for the State of the University address. It will also be broadcast here on Twitch. Um, that will be a um, that will be a second the second session of the so that day the seventeenth is the day of course of our uh, fall fundraiser uh, uh, end of fundraiser celebration webathon which I've done for the last this is I think the eighth annual webathon uh, that we've done. Um, it's going to start it at, uh, when's it going to start? It's going to start at noon. It's going to start at noon on the 17th, Eastern time, noon, Eastern time on the 17th. Uh, and it's going to go until about midnight. Um, and we're going to do lots and lots of different things. Uh, we're going to do some, some very serious things where, where we're talking, where I, you know, I'd like, to, like the state of the university address, where I'm going to talk about where Signum University is headed. Before that, we're going to do some, um, some open public courses, uh, mini courses from our Signum Path course. So you've heard me talk about our Signum Path program um, and you know, our new humanities-based professional development program. Um, and if you've never gotten a chance to really see what our PATH program is like, I encourage you, two of our faculty are going to be doing uh, little mini courses based on uh, some of the courses that they are actually teaching uh, in our PATH program. So you can get a free taste of what our PATH program is like just to, to sort of see what it's about. Um, that's going to start at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. And then the State of the University address is going to come after that. And there's going to be a bunch of other things that are going to be happening in the day. I'm going to be doing a Tolkien trivia contest. I'm going to be doing, um, uh, I'm going to be do. we're going to do a, uh, a, a live audience reading of, uh, an episode uh, from the film film project. So you can, uh, we can, we're going to do lots of audience participation and that's going to be fun. Um, I'm going to, we're, I'm going to, we're going to watch a movie we're going to watch a movie together, a Halloween movie together. Um, we're going to, uh, do all kinds of things. It's going to be a fun day. And of course I will also end, uh, with a Lotro stream and you can watch, uh, Wigand, my main character, heading off into uh, uh, Mordor for the first time, crossing the boundary into Mordor for the first time ever. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, that's um, uh, that's the um, uh, that's that's all happening on Saturday. Again, it will start at noon Eastern time, and it will go until about midnight. Uh, tune in on the Twitch channel, um, and you can also go to Signum University's website for more information and different links for different sessions and stuff. Um, so, there we are. Um, okay. Um, cool. All right. Um, that's what's coming up. Uh, and uh, thanks for talking about that with me here. Um is my uh, character going to run into Mordor as a chicken for the first time ever? No, 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 no. I'm pursuing, <laughs> I'm pursuing the, because, well, fortunately, 
Lisa Linda, the I was not jumped by a moomock at the crossroads this past time, so that was hand that was handy. Um, I, I, you know, those things they're so wily, but um, uh, but yeah, no. So Wigan is gonna he did the he did up through the the battle at the Black Gate, and he's gonna continue on into Mordor. Uh, so that'll be uh, that'll be fun. Angrist, we should do another chicken run sometime. Maybe a chicken run to um, to the Lonely Mountain uh, would be good. The uh, the the there and back again uh chicken run would be cool um that would be uh that would be a fun run anyway all right um so with that let us jump back into the text um okay so we got gandalf to isengard and now we get his meeting with Saruman. Late one evening I came to the gate, like a great arch in the wall of rock, and it was strongly guarded. But the keepers of the gate were on the watch for me, and told me that Saruman awaited me. I rode under the arch, and the gate closed silently behind me, and suddenly I was afraid, though I knew no reason for it. But I rode to the foot of Orthanc, and came to the stair of Saruman. And there he met me, and led me up to his high chamber. He wore a ring on his finger. "'So you have come, Gandalf,' he said to me gravely, but in his eyes there seemed to be a white light, as if a cold laughter was in his heart. "'Yes, I have come,' I said. "'I have come for your aid, Saruman the White.' And that title seemed to anger him. "'Have you indeed, Gandalf the Grey?' he scoffed. "'For aid?' It has seldom been heard that Gandalf the Grey sought for aid, one so cunning and so wise, wandering about in the lands and concerning himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not. Okay. Um, <clears throat> look, um, what I want to focus on here is the tone from the beginning, right? Not only Saruman's tone, which is pretty striking from the beginning, um, but also Gandalf's as well. Gandalf begins by suddenly feeling afraid when the gate closed silently behind him, right? He described Isengard in the last passage that we talked about last time, you know, this sort of walled valley in which there is only one door. Um, so it's, it's a trap, right? Um, it's a highly defensible position, and, um, you know, it's like he has this sort of insight that on the one hand, it was designed, of course, to keep out enemies. But if it had been designed to be a prison, it would also do a pretty, uh, a pretty good job uh, uh, at that as well. Right. Um, he knew no reason for fear, he says, but he was afraid. Um, he doesn't seem to, he doesn't stop to analyze the fear exactly now. And here, the thing that I would emphasize, the, what I, one of the things that I take from this is to remember that to this point, everything that he knows about Saruman, his reason has no cause to believe anything ill of Saruman, or to suspect anything bad about Saruman. Um, he has a sudden 
and uh, in a sense, irrational, um, irrational fear. Um, but um, yeah, I I agree, Angrist. Uh, trusting the sense of impending doom is uh, um, <clears throat> often a good idea. Um, yeah, but um, but I th- again, the thing that I would want to emphasize is that there is no reason for him to think that. Sam, I agree exactly as you said. Um, at the time, he probably slapped himself on the wrist for thinking something like that. Yes, exactly. Like what you know. He feels afraid. It's like you know, this is this is this is Saruman. What cause do I have for fear? What? Co- why should I do him the injustice of, you know, uh, giving in to this kind of feeling? Right. I mean, he, and this is, of course, significant. It seems to me because this is the second time we have seen. Um, uh, this is the second time we have seen this issue arise with Gandalf, and of course. The first time it indirectly involves Saruman, and the second time, of course, here quite directly. Um, a shadow fell in his heart about the ring. He didn't have any reason for it, no clear reason, especially at first. right? I mean, he didn't even know, he had no reason to know that Bilbo's ring was even one of the great rings. I mean, right away, like as soon as Bilbo got it. Um, Gandalf says that a shadow fell in his heart soon after Bilbo found the ring. He knows no reason for that. It doesn't make sense. And even once he does have concrete reason to suspect that it's one of the great rings, because it gave long life to a mortal, um, he has reason to think it's one of the great rings, but he still his reason still tells him it can't be the one ring because Saruman knows that it isn't right. It has been somehow revealed to him, to Gandalf or sorry, to Saruman rather that the one is out of the picture. So he knows that it can't be true. Just as here, he knows Saruman is an ally. He knows Saruman is his boss, right? Not exactly his boss. That puts it on a an inappropriate footing. Um, it seems fairly clear to me that Gandalf and Saruman are more like peers, um, but but um, but yet Saruman is the head of his order, right? So, but he's not like his liege. I mean, it's not like he owes him, um, you know. Uh, you know, fealty or something like that. Um, he's not his sworn man. Uh, but, um, um, yeah, it's like a faculty postdoc situation for Thalas, or even, or even like a, you know, tenured faculty member and department chair situation. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, that's, that's, that does seem to me uh, a pretty good parallel for it. They're basically peers, but Saruman does have a position of authority anyway. But that's not even the point, right? The The main point is that um, he has no reason, he knows no reason to distrust him. He knows no reason to distrust him. So once again, now I, I hear a couple of you are pointing out that, uh, of course, um, the he's telling the story after the fact. So, you know... Um, uh, it's, it's conceivable to imagine that his, um, 
his adding in that his you know his adding in the sudden fear like the foreshadowing of his fear could be a sort of poetic technique right in order to uh, uh, in order to emphasize the the um, you know to to make some foreshadowing and to sort of build the drama uh, of the story and hint at what's to come, um, but I, although it's you know I, one can't rule that out entirely. Uh, to me, it is significant that we see Gandalf, or rather, we hear Gandalf, because this comes from his own testimony again. Um, we hear Gandalf um, uh, once more having a feeling which is not only not linked to reason, but is actually contrary to his reason. Correct, of course, in both cases, it turns out to be right. And that his reasoning, which conflicts with the feeling, turns out to be based on faulty premises, right? It turns out Saruman is not, in fact, his ally, and he does have reason to fear that he does not know of. And, of course, it turned out that he did. There was a very good reason for the shadow falling on his heart about the ring. Um, So um, that's... um, that's interesting. Yeah, Forthos is asking what would Gandalf accomplish by foreshadowing. Part of it, Forthos, would just be good storytelling, right? To sort of build the, uh, to build this sense of 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 suspense and the dread at the coming, uh, at the coming treachery, um, uh, in his hearers. But at the same time, um, emphasizing his or their own folly, Forthos seems to me a really good theory there as well. Um, that. If he depicts himself as walking deliberately of his own will into a trap that he really, in retrospect, should have known was coming, that does seem to be the kind of story that he's wanting to tell here, right? Um, He is not making himself look better, right? If anything, he's making himself look worse. uh, Because I mean, you could say that he's saying, and I saw somebody joking about this before, like, uh, you know... Gandalf being all like, of course, I, I knew it all along, right? Or, you know, like, uh, I, you know, I, uh, I I really suspected what was happening. But again, as Fourth Thoughtless, I think, points out, that doesn't make it better. That makes it worse, right? The story, I mean, his own actions, therefore, um, are um, are even worse if he there were some reason to think that he would, uh, would have or should have um, uh, uh, known you know, along. Um, yeah, as Mike said, his making himself look worse adds to the credibility of the story. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, good. Yeah. Green Great Dragon says, bad storytelling is all of the facts and none of the flavor. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but anyway, like I say, this, this trend is interesting. And especially since, as I say, Saruman, uh, is actually involved both times. And that by itself suggests a kind of an interesting pattern, right? Um, his, his rational mind, um, his, his, his rational analysis of the situations, both of the ring, of this random ring that Bilbo found first, and secondly, of his safety in Orthunk, right? Both of those are premised on Saruman, or premised on things that Saruman has taught, right? In other words, the um, 
these rational structures, which his heart rebels rebels against is not quite right, but um, with which his heart is not in sync, right? Um, Those things are, those things come from Saruman, right? So we have this picture before we begin their confrontation of Gandalf as sort of the intuitive one and Saruman associated with reason and rationality, right? And of course, with false rationality. Um, and, um, Mike, I do agree that in some sense, of course, Gandalf is believing something to be true because he wants it to be true. Um, of course, that's one of the things that, um, that's one of the things that, uh, um, Saruman's lies are based on, right? His lie about the ring, um, based on the fact that that lie was very likely to be accepted, not only because of his own very significant authority, right, that he was wielding in order to get people to believe that, but also because they wanted to, right? He knew that there would be an additional temptation, um, the relief that they would be, they would want to believe what he was going to tell them. So that's certainly true. Um, Oh, hey, Michael, Tobias, great. I don't know if you're new tonight, or I think I, I don't recognize your name very well here. Uh, so welcome. Um, a little tip, shorter. <laughs> it's harder for me to read a block like that uh, during the middle of class. So shor- shorter things, multiple short things are easier. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um it's okay. No worries. Just, just, uh, just, just, just advice. It'll, 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 it'll be easier to integrate what you're saying there. Um, yeah. Now I agree. Uh, I agree, Sarah, that it is a large jump to guess the full situation. It's, you know, saying I was suddenly afraid is one thing saying in retrospect, I should have known that Saruman was a traitor all along is quite a separate thing. Even if he were to stop and give full credence to his sense of fear, that doesn't necessarily mean that from that he could somehow know or that he did somehow know deep down what the real situation was. Um, um, yeah, as Arden Crayon points out, Boromir will express a similar doubt before entering Lorien. Similar, not the same, I think. That will actually be an interesting contrast, Arden Crayon. Indeed, uh, if I don't miss my guess, I think that, that those two scenes... Gandalf's fear upon entering Orthanc, or upon, upon entering Isengard, and Boromir's trepidation about crossing the border into Moria, sorry, not into Moria, into, uh, into Lothlorien. And I would add to that Gimli's difficulty in crossing the threshold of the Paths of the Dead. Those three sort of threshold moments would be a really interesting comparison and contrast. There are some interesting similarities and some very important differences, I think, there. Um, and that's going to be... Uh, uh, he does express... Aragorn expresses doubt before Moria. That doesn't feel to me quite the same. Um, uh, just because there, it's a question of should we take this road or that road, right? They're trying to decide in advance which road would be best to take rather than standing on the threshold, I had an experience, right? That's the thing that Boromir, Gimli, and Gandalf all have in common there. Um, but um, anyway, uh, so um, 
Yeah, and Mad Violinist, as you point out, uh, an element of foresight does come into Ar- Aragorn's reluctance, at least during their latter conversation, right? Um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think uh, Arden Crane, I think it's a really interesting point. I, I think that they're actually quite different, Boromir, Boromir with Lothlorien and Gandalf with Isengard, but I think it's a really interesting comparison. That would be a really fun... Uh, a really fun moot paper, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, okay, so... Um, yeah, but just to get back to my larger point, though, Gandalf's intuition, I guess we could call it, right? This is now not an isolated thing, right? This is now a trend. Gandalf is... Um, Gandalf having these impulses, right, which he can't really explain, which don't necess- which are not really drawn from reason, um, which are not drawn from evidence, but which he just sort of has, right? Um, even when they're opposed to reason, are often correct. Now, that's not necessarily true of everybody. We can't generalize that. Um, but it does uh, certainly seem to be an important thing for him. And it will be interesting to see if that comes up other times, right? Let's keep an eye now uh, on that as we, uh, as we move forward. Nancy says his, his Nienna senses are tingling. Uh, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, but I rode to the foot of Orthanc, right? I did the sensible thing. Uh, I didn't, uh, give in to my brief fear. And instead, um, I, uh, uh, I I went ahead and did what I came to do. I rode to the foot of Orthanc and came to the stair of Saruman, and there he met me and led me up to his high chamber. He wore a ring on his finger. Nothing. So that first sentence is quite normal, right? He rode to Orthanc. Uh, Saruman came to meet him. Totally normal, Right? led me up to his high chamber. Not strange. Um, Saruman doesn't live in Orthanc by himself. We know there are guards on the gate, and as, of course, several of you um, uh, pointed out, um, almost certainly those are not orcs, right? Uh, Gandalf would probably have twigged that something was wrong if he saw orcs guarding the gate. So the, the guards on the gate are doubtless men. Um... But, um, uh, but anyway, uh, he's not alone in Orthanc, right? So that Saruman would lead him to his high chamber doesn't seem strange at all, right? That's going to be Saruman's, like, private study, essentially. Um, and so that, that after summoning him urgently to Orthanc in order to share with him whatever it is that he has learned or whatever device he has devised um, uh, for the stopping, thwarting, resisting of the ringwraiths, um, that Saruman would bring him straight to his study seems perfectly logical, right? Um, And then we just get that one sentence, he wore a ring on his finger. Um, This, several of you are asking about this, no idea. 
No idea. Now, Michael asks, is Orthanc something like a library of Alexandria? Are there other scholars there? Uh, no, no, it's private. Um, it is privately held. He is the warden of the tower. Um, you know, I, I, you know, he's, uh, was, you know, given the keys to Orthanc by the steward of Gondor, um, you know, some many generations back. Um, so it, it's definitely his private, his private place. Um, but, um, but yeah, he has a ring on his, on his finger. <laughs> Sam says, nice that Saruman found someone and, and decided to settle down. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, Sam, I never once thought of that reading that line, right. You know, get, you know, Gandalf sees he wears a ring on his finger and says, "Ooh, you know, dish Saruman, like, you know, <laughs> who is she?" Um uh yeah, no. Um <laughs> but um yeah. But it's an ominous um it's an ominous sentence. Ominous because it's so tantalizing. We know. We've already been told that Saruman has primarily been studying the Rings of Power. That's been established. Gandalf has already mentioned this and talked about the White Council meeting where Saruman spoke about this and everything. And yeah, Kurtzimus, I think that you are right that we're already associating rings with evil, right? I mean, there's, there's, we've not gotten to the Elven Rings yet. They were mentioned um, by Gandalf back in Chapter 2, you know, back in the Shadows of the Past, but um, they... We, you know, the emphasis has not been there yet. We've not really talked about those much. Um, but certainly it's a little bit, it's a little bit obvious, uh, a little bit ominous rather. Um, yeah, I agree, JJ. It does seem that Gandalf thinks it's important because he mentions it specially. And he mentions it specially in a short, simple sentence at the end of a paragraph, which is a favorite rhetorical uh, uh, move of Tolkien's. He wore a ring on his finger. Um, what ring? What does Saruman's ring do? It clearly does something, right? We will see Saruman calling himself Ringmaker. We don't know what his ring of power does or is meant to do, or how well it works. Um, um, but, um, yeah, Gandalf's ring is hidden. Um, we have no idea about Gandalf's ring. Um, yeah, yeah, Michael, I agree that it does seem to be important that nobody can see the Elvish rings unless the wearer chooses to reveal that fact, or the other person happens to be... You know, because Frodo is a ring bearer, and has gained a certain stature from that, Galadriel will tell him that's why he can see her ring. Um, uh, Gandalf can see Saruman's ring. Is Saruman, is it a concealed ring? Is this a ring that he's never noticed? I think it's a ring he's never worn before. Um, uh, and no, Angrist, we never learn. <laughs> Tolkien never says uh, this is one of those this is in that category of completely untold stories um, 
you know, on uh, on Tolkien's part. Um, it's possible that Saruman's ring is, uh, you know, is, is, is one of the lesser rings. Um, that's possible. Um, I think it more likely that Saruman made this ring himself. Um, he does call himself Ringmaker, so presumably he's had at least one success, and I've got to think it's that's the ring that he's wearing, right? He's... Um, um, not going to, I wouldn't think he would think very much of just wearing one of the lesser rings that he had, you know, dredged up from somewhere. <laughs> dredged. Sorry. I didn't actually mean that literally until that came out. But, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, Lincoln says, would Gandalf think it might be a lesser ring at first? Sure. But see, even... It's an interesting question. In the abstract, if Saruman had just said, hey, I made a ring of power. You know, it's like a you know, minor league ring of power. You know, it's not... I'm no Celebrimbor, you know, but um, I totally made a ring of power. What would Gandalf say? What would Gandalf's reaction to that have been? Would everyone have gasped in horror if he had admitted, hey, um, I, uh, I made a ring of power? I don't think so. I don't think it's a... I mean, I think there might have been some concern. I'm not saying it's not like a little bit of a red flag, right? Um, but I don't think it's a dead giveaway. I don't think it's like established now that only wicked and evil people make rings of power. Um, I mean, Celebrimbor made rings of power. You know, Gandalf, Galadriel, and Elrond are wielding rings of power. So it's not that rings of power themselves are intrinsically bad. Um, you know, it's... Um, um, he, he's been known, Saruman, I mean, everyone is known, he has gone in for ring lore, right? That he has been studying the lore of the making of the, of the, of the rings of power. If he moved from abstract study to praxis uh, in the whole ring lore question, would that show that he had gone completely off the rails? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I don't know that that's itself necessary. It's not necessarily damning, but it's in- it is interesting that Gandalf comments on it like this, right? He wore a ring on his finger. Now, again, Gandalf is saying that he noticed this and notice he doesn't reel back and was like, what, Saruman, you have a ring of power. I am not ascending to your high chamber. No, I mean, presumably he noticed it, you know. I don't know what on the stairs. Well, I don't know exactly. Um, uh, but, um, you know, he went along despite the fact that he saw that Saruman had a ring of power. Um, um, yeah. So fourth Dauntless, when it comes to, um, when it comes to wild speculation, concerning which there is no clear evidence of any kind as to what Saruman's ring might do. It's not that I'm afraid to go there, because goodness knows I'm not afraid to speculate wildly with no evidence. Um, But, 
I think, um, Tomas, I, by the way, I do, uh, no, sorry, JJ, I do suspect that in retrospect, uh, Gandalf is going to, is pointing out the ring because he noticed it beforehand, but he only understood its full significance in retrospect. So I think that that's why he's pointing it out so that his listeners can have that same, um, experience. What does the Ring of Power... If you were Saruman, what would you want your Ring of Power to do? Angrist and... Um, uh, somebody else was suggesting... Some, yeah, uh, Emily. Uh, we're both suggesting that it sort of amplifies the power of his voice. Um, that I can easily imagine. I can easily imagine Gandalf... Or, sorry, Saruman making a ring that... Um, he already exerts his power to establish power over others, to establish a kind of dominance over others. Um, so he is, uh, he is, and he's doing this in a big way, right? Not just in private conversation. Um, there are two things that Saruman is doing with the power of his voice now, which are different than he's ever done before. One, he is exerting power by either by proxy or over long distances, right? What is happening to Theoden is Wormtongue, but Wormtongue is somehow empowered. We'll, we'll get to that, right? We'll get to Wormtongue, uh, and we'll see what we think when we come there. Um, but something is happening with Theoden, and Saruman is somehow at the root of it. Right. So that's one interesting thing that we see. There is there is uh, the um, the snare that Theoden is caught in is one thing which does not seem to be um, a thing that Saruman has done before. The other thing is that he's again, he's not just trying to influence other people that he's talking to. He is influencing influencing people and nations, right? Like the way that he brings the Dunlendings into his service, right? He is recruiting on a large scale. And again, so far as we know, that is not really something that has happened before um, in, uh, in Saruman's experience. So that makes me wonder... Um, that's what makes me think that you might be right, uh, Angrist and Emily, who are both suggesting that he's using the ring to sort of augment his normal uh, power, his normal persuasive power uh, through his voice um, in and applying it in new ways. Um, the kind of hold that he is attempting to establish over Rohan, and which he seems to have established, at least to some extent, uh, in Dunland, um, is uh, is new and is different. Um, so, or at least, again, he's never done it before. Does it prove that he never had that power before? No, it doesn't prove that at all. Um, but we have the sort of um, correlation, right? The correlation between him exerting his power in newer and bigger ways than he's exerted them before and also he made himself a ring of power. Those two things 
are correlated together. That doesn't prove causality, but um, but there we go. Um, it is possible, Brick tells, that the Ring of Power has something to do with his Uruk High breeding program. Um, that is possible. Um, yes, yes, that... Um, Right, yeah, Trifle is saying it reminds him of the, the hold that Sauron has uh, on his armies to the point that some of Sauron's orcs kill themselves when Sauron's hold is, is removed. Yes, yes. Um, right, like that. Like, th- that would be a, a kind of thing that he might want to emulate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, that seems to me as totally groundless and evidence-free speculations are concerned. That seems to me a reasonably good one. Um, uh, I wonder... Yeah, Mike is thinking, you know, could it maybe help him assert control over his Palantir? Or, Mike, could it be designed to help to, like, defend him? Um, that's That would be my second choice. My, my top choice as to what his ring does... Um, if I had to guess, would be the augmentation of his voice. My second guess would be defense. He has power while in Isengard to repel the Ringwraiths. He can stand up to from Isengard. He can stand up to them. Um, would what has he been trying to defend himself from Sauron? Has he been? Does he want to free himself from Sauron's control? And the Ring is attempting to. Um, to help him with that, I'm um, I'm not sure. I think that that's uh, that that's but yeah, exactly, uh, Matt. Just that. Um, so yeah, that's um, that's also possible. It's kind of a distant second for me, but that's that would be my second guess. But just again, trying to associate the power of his ring with anything else that's mentioned about him, essentially. But okay, anyway. Now back to their tones, to the tones of their words. So you have come, Gandalf, he said to me gravely. So you have come. What kind of an opening is that? So you have come. Um, He's expressing to Gandalf his own skepticism that Gandalf would come. I mean, he's opening essentially with an insult, right? So you have come. Oh, you came after all, right? Um, to, to, when someone comes to you for aid, right, to acknowledge that by saying, I'm surprised you came, Right. I didn't expect that you would actually be so wise as to come. Um, that's um, aggressive, right? Um, insulting from the beginning. So you have come. Um, the contrast between the gravity of his tone and the cold laughter that shines in the white light in his eyes... Um, makes it clear, seems to make, seems to me to make it clear that he's toying with Gandalf. So you have come, Gandalf. Um, 
because again, the, the words there don't, it's not just a mock, right? Um, he, it's, it's not literally the same thing as saying, I didn't think you would come. I do think that's a subtext of that statement, but explicitly what on the surface he is saying is the moment has arrived. So you have come, right? I mean, if you followed that up with a cheerful smile and a hug and said, just as I hoped you would, it would sound perfectly fine, wouldn't it? Right. Um, uh, So this kind of grave celebration of the moment. Right. Uh, Yet with that undertone of mockery and then the contrast. Right. He is making fun of Gandalf. um, Right. you know, from, uh, from, from the get go. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Valori says, Oh, look who shows up for Thanksgiving after all these years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Whereas Lapilia says, like when a teenager comes out of their room, uh, and, Oh, you've come out to join us. What a surprise. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I've, that's a, I've, I've heard exactly that kind of thing in my house. Um, yeah, yeah, and Arden Cran, I agree. I think that there is another subtext of the the cold laughter of you actually fell for that. You're even dumber than I thought. Um, there's a triumph there, right? A mocking triumph. I suckered you into coming, and you fell for it. But Gandalf's response: Yes, I have come. I have come for your aid, Saruman the White, and that title seemed to anger him. Um, what is Gandalf's move here? He is speaking very formally. Yes, I have come. I have come for your aid. What's, um... Who talks like that? Under what circumstances does somebody talk... Gandalf doesn't normally talk like that. Um... Yeah. And Draken, yeah, let's, um... Uh, let's keep that in mind. Let's not forget. We'll come back to it. Um, but let's, um, let's not forget the white light in Saruman's eyes. I agree. I would have expected, right? It's the kind of thing where if you'd, if you had just said without me reading the passage, right? A light shines in Saruman's eyes. What color is it? I'd have guessed pale as well. A pale light was in his eyes, right? Just like the pale light is the is the a disturbing light, right? In Gollum's eyes, for instance. Um, yeah. So, JJ, it seems very likely that Gandalf is trying to be respectful and deferential. Um, probably sincerely so. I can't help but feel he's laying it on a little bit thick. I mean, maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's unfair, but it seems a little pointed. Yes, I have come. I have come for your aid. Saruman the White. Using the whole title. And keep in mind, he's not... He is anti- reciprocating there, right? You know, it's like when you're writing a, an email in a, like a, in a business context and you're not sure how to address the person. So you start off going really formal, but 
if you're responding to an email that someone else has written to you and they sign themselves by, you know, a short version of, the, you know, by a nickname, essentially, then you feel confident in addressing them by that nickname since they sign themselves that way, right? You're kind of picking up on their cues and... and, and, and re- Gandalf does not do that. Saruman didn't call him Gandalf the Grey, so you have come, Gandalf the Grey, right? He doesn't establish that to him. So you have come, Gandalf. Informal, right? You know, I, I, there's something there, right? I, I think that Gandalf can probably perceive, you know, can perceive the 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 difference between the gravity of his tone and the laughter in his eyes. Um, but Gandalf chooses to hike up the formality and call him by his whole title Saruman the White. Um, yeah, Michael says it's a correction for his unease. That seems um, that seems very likely to me. Now, Rowan, that's a really good question. You know, um, pointing out that Saruman is calling him Gandalf um, uh, rather than Mithrandir. I don't know what to, how much to read into that um, because we don't really know what the wizards call themselves among themselves. That Gandalf uses that name, those names, that is Gandalf and Saruman, um, okay, yeah, it's right, Angus. That was I was going to raise the possibility um, of uh, uh, narratorial revisionism for clarity that Frodo, as narrator, is using those two terms. But I think that there's another explanation. Saruman. Saruman is that wizard's name among the Rohirrim. That is, it's his local name, essentially. Um, uh, exactly as you say, um, uh, Treya Kurinir is what the elves call him. Um, he doesn't call him Kurinir. He calls him Saruman. Saruman is how he's known locally. Um, Gandalf is how that wizard is known locally in the north, which is where he was. In other words, he is known as Gandalf in his lurking place in the Shire, which Saruman knows is from whence he summoned him. Right? So, it is possible it is possible that that name, um, so you have come Gandalf, could perhaps even be pointed in that way. He is referring to him by his name in the north, by his name among the hobbits, um, which seems perhaps not an accident. And when Gandalf responds, he responds to his name with his name here among the Rohirrim here in this, in this kingdom. Um, and Matt, yeah, he, he does seem to be primarily known, uh, as Saruman 
in Gondor as well. Um, which is itself an interesting thing, isn't it, Matt? It kind of suggests to me that, um, well, goodness, I'd almost point to it as an example of lore waning in Gondor, right? Not only because they're not using the Elvish name for the wizard, but are instead using the local name, but even the fact that if they associate, I mean, they'd be, they could easily, on the one hand, they could easily be forgiven. The people of Gondor could be forgiven for associating Saruman with Rohan because he's really far away from Gondor. All of Rohan stands in between them. So he's kind of like a, he's kind of a, um, a Rohan guy in a sense, right? So that they would think of him as Saruman would make a kind of sense. But of course, his place is a Gondor place. But of course, Orthanc has ceased to be, not only has Orthanc itself ceased to be really Gondorian property uh, for centuries, it's not only that, but their, their realm doesn't really reach that far anymore, right? Kalinarthen was basically, uh, was, was basically abandoned. So the only reason that they have any pull at all is because their friends, the Rohirrim live there now. So, um, I, you know, as a, as a, a sign, a, a kind of a sign that the, um, you know, the influence of Gondor is shrinking and they, even their own picture of themselves, uh, is shrinking. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree, Michael. They wouldn't be having the conversation in Westron, probably, though. Maybe they would. I don't know. Maybe they would. Um, it's possible that they would be having the conversation in Westron. Um, fun fact. I don't think Westron has been invented yet when he wrote this. Just for the record. Um... The concept of Westron, specifically, not that there is a common tongue that most people, you know, in Middle-earth speak. Um, that concept is there. Um, even from The Hobbit, you know, where the hobbits and dwarves and goblins speak the same language, but the wargs don't, right? Um, not to mention the Wood Elves and Bjorn and everybody else. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, Westron I don't think exists yet. Um, Westron, of course, is derived from Adunayak, which Tolkien, which was not yet a glimmer in Tolkien's eye. Tolkien started to write Adunayak, started to make up the language of Adunayak, the language of Numenor, from which Westron is derived, um, later. During one of the breaks that he took, he took two breaks. Uh, there were two interruptions to the to the writing of the Lord of the Rings, and I think it was during the second interruption. So, not the interruption that happened after they got to Balin's tomb, but the interruption that happened uh, when um, it was like time to really describe the war, you know, when Gandalf and Pippin were uh, going to Minas Tirith and, and uh, they hadn't, he hadn't, Tolkien hadn't worked out the trip of uh, Frodo and Sam and all that stuff um, in that time. So Sam, Frodo and Sam are in the Emin Wheel um, and there's the second hiatus. And during that hiatus, 
is when he invented the Adonaic language. Exactly, Mornowin. That's when he wrote the Notion Club papers. And from the Notion Club papers, also the, um, um, the, the new Numenorean stuff. Uh, this is the stuff that's in Sauron Defeated. We talked about that in the Mythgard Academy a uh, while back. Um, uh, last year, I think it was. Um, but, um, but yeah, so just, uh, no. Um, so just for the record, Westron doesn't, doesn't exist yet, uh, as a language concept, uh, specifically, uh, in Tolkien's mind by this point. Um, but, um, um, so good, good. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Okay, um, and someone was asking, did Mithrandir exist yet? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't believe there's any evidence of Gandalf being called Mithrandir until they get to Lorien. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think, I don't think there are. Um, and Lorien, yeah, no, that's, um, that's... That doesn't come out, and that only ever comes out once. That doesn't come out till it comes out in Faramir's conversation, right? As so many things came out, uh, Faramir opens his mouth, and world building happens, right? That's uh, that's what we get when you, that's what you get when you meet Faramir. Um, so yeah, Emily, that's the that that's where we get it. Faramir tells Frodo a secondhand account of Gandalf explaining his names to Faramir. Um, so that's, that's when, that's when we get that. Um, and why, of course, we know so little about Inconos. Um, <laughs> Nancy wants that on a t-shirt. Faramir opens his mouth and world building happens. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit sidetracked now with the names. Um, but, uh, so I... I mean, mostly they're calling each other this because these are their names. I mean, they don't have other names yet. I don't think there's any reason to think that either one of them has other names at this point. But looking at it in retrospect, after their other names are established, I still think it forms an interesting kind of pattern. Um, Especially if... uh, And it works for me especially well, I think, if um, the association of the Gandalf name is made with his lurking place in the Shire. Um, okay, good. Yeah, Matthew is confirming my sense that Mithrandir did not appear in the text until Lothlorien. Yeah, I was pretty sure of that. Um, okay. Um, so, back to his use of the title. He's uncomfortable. He He perceives that there's something happening. He perceives the... There's irony, right? There's irony in Saruman's words. Irony which he's uncomfortable with, Gandalf is uncomfortable with. Um, Yes, yes, I have come. I have come for your aid, Saruman the White. The first is just a response. So you have come, Gandalf. Yes, I have come. And then he reiterates it and turns it Right? I have come for your aid, Saruman the White. Yes, I've come. I've come here for good reason. I've come here to get help from you. 
because help is needed and you've offered help. And I like the point, and I forget which one of you um, was saying this earlier on, um, by calling him Saruman the White, it's almost like he's trying to remind Saruman of who he is, right? Um, I like that. Um, you are Saruman the <laughs> Let me clarify for you, sir, what's happening here. You're, you're Saruman the White, and I'm coming to you for aid. Um, yeah, it was e- e- Evil Dr. Cannon. Yeah, great, great. Um, um, interesting. Brandon is remembering his words to Bilbo, Gandalf's words to Bilbo. I haven't come to rob you. I've come to help you. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that would be an uncomfortable, th- you know, or <laughs> Brandon, is he looking for that kind of reassurance from Saruman here? Um, yeah, but, um, right. Ambrosius is wondering, uh, uh, you know, you still are Saruman the White, aren't you? Right. Um, like just doing a little identity confirmation there. Right. Um, I've come for your aid, Saruman the White. Um, you know, a code has been sent to your cell phone. Uh, and yeah, I mean, this is you. Right. Um, and that title seemed to anger him. Gandalf's impulse to add the title pays off immediately, right? Um, The use of the title angers Saruman. Was he testing him here? You know, did, did, was he trying to see if he could get this kind of response um, from Saruman? Um, Yeah. Nancy, the color designations... I've never understood, never really felt like I understood the color designations. It's easy to imagine it, and I think most people do imagine it, as being something like colored belts in karate. Um, you know, you, you get your brown belt, and then your gray belt, and then your white belt, apparently, if you're a wizard, right? That's, that's um, the natural way in which a lot of people seem to accept the titles, right? Um, I am not sure that that's what that means at all. Um, the thing that, um, yeah, where does blue fall? Who knows? I mean, who knows exactly? But then again, I tell myself somebody who has never taken karate before and knew nothing about it wouldn't necessarily know whether a green belt was higher than a yellow belt, so, you know, there's an arbitrariness to the system, certainly from the outside. So, um, uh, you know, who knows? But um, the thing, of course, that primarily gets people thinking in this direction, that it's a rank as well as a title, um, is Gandalf's promotion, right? That when Gandalf... Um, uh, that when Gandalf comes back... Um, he is the white now, right? And so therefore it seems pretty clear that the title the white means the one who is the boss. So gray must mean therefore the one who is not yet but fairly close to the boss. Um, uh, And I think that that's possible. But I'm still not 100% sure that that's exactly what it means that Gandalf comes back as Gandalf 
the white. Um, yeah, Michael, exactly. The, so, uh, but I'm not sure that it's exactly a promotion. Not in the same sense that getting promoted from brown belt to black belt is a promotion. Exactly. Yeah, WKU, is it a promotion or a replacement? That's that's exactly it's exactly what I'm thinking. Um, yes, Kit, it's more about job description, maybe. It's not that Gandalf comes back and now has been, you know, has displaced Saruman from his position of authority, but rather Gandalf has come back and he's been given Saruman's job. Um, yeah, yeah, that is, I think, what it means. That's what I think what it means when it says that he is Saruman as he should have been. That's, that's what he means when he says that. He, Saruman had a job. Saruman is not doing his job. Saruman has utterly failed at his job. And when Gandalf comes back, he's not the gray anymore. Gandalf's job has changed. And notice how it changes, right? Gandalf acts differently when he comes back. His role is, it's not just that his power is greater. It's not just that, like, Gandalf does what Gandalf has always done, except now he can do more of it because he's more powerful and has more authority. Um, that's not totally wrong, but I don't think that's the only explanation. Um, I think that it is... He had one role. He was playing a particular role when he was Gandalf the Grey. And he does not play that role anymore when he comes back. When he comes back... They needed the White Wizard. Like, the White Wizard had a role. And that role was not being filled. Um, and when he comes back, he's filling that role. He is being Saruman as he should have been. I am Saruman, as you might say. Saruman as he should have been. Right? Again, this doesn't mean I've been promoted over Saruman's head. Exactly. I mean, it kind of does and it kind of doesn't, in a sense, I think. But, but it's more about the change of the patterns of action, which suggests to me that there's more to it. And in any case, what I don't believe, backing up from that a second, and we'll, you know, those are all things we'll talk about a good deal later, but um, backing up from that, when it comes to the five of them having colors, or at least the three of them, because remember, blue comes much later. We don't. We only get one hint that there are two other wizards besides Radagast and Gandalf. Um, we certainly don't know what their colors are in the Lord of the Rings. White, brown, and gray are all that we know of. Um, and um, yeah, as Matt says, it should be noted that Saruman had resigned from his post as well. Very true, right? So that uh, the post of White Wizard was technically vacant as uh, as uh, um, uh, Saruman had uh, com- not only failed at it, he didn't just get fired, he abdicated, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, anyhow, so... Um, but what I don't like, what doesn't feel to me quite right, is that white, gray, and brown are hierarchical. Are, are, you know, should be understood to be plainly hierarchical. Um, and I mostly say, Gandalf doesn't show any indication that he sees Radagast as his inferior, right? Radagast, the mere, uh, the mere, you know, the mere 
um, the mere brown belt wizard, right? Um, again, I feel that this understanding of it gets supported, ironically, by Saruman's scorn, right? Um, yeah. <clears throat> JJ, that feels to me right also. That brown applies to Radagast as a color of nature seems to me more appropriate. You know, his connection to the earth, you know, to birds and beasts. Um, brown seems fitting. Um, uh, I mean, goodness, even in a very indirect way, um, brown, Radagast the brown as like Radagast, you know, Radagast being almost like um, wearing, wearing something almost like a friar's habit, right? And therefore remembering St. Francis of Assisi uh, and his friendship with the birds and beasts. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, it seems to me fitting in more than, in more than one way. Um, but again, I don't think, um, I don't think it's literal. If it were Ambrosius Aurelianus, it might be because of his pipe smoke that Gandalf is associated with grayness. Um, but, um, uh, but, but yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think that it's, it's a power rank. I think it's about it's it's some kind of identification, right? It is a title. Title is the word that Gandalf uses here to describe it. Saruman the White, the White is his title. But that doesn't mean it's his rank. It doesn't mean it's his position. And in any case, it seems to anger him. And that, I think, is the thing that's most revealing to me here. That's what's most suggestive. Why should it anger him? If the White means head honcho, right? If that means you are the most powerful wizard, you are the boss wizard, why should he be angry to be called the white? Um, he's going, he, Saruman is going to be heaping scorn on whiteness itself, um, which I don't think he would be doing if the white meant nothing other than big boss man, right? Saruman seems to quite like being a big boss man. And if Gandalf's words, I have come for your aid, Saruman the white, meant nothing other than, I have come for your aid, O great master who is far superior to me, I don't see that angering him. But being called the white does anger him. And let's look at what he says in his anger to see how we can understand initially um, that anger. Have you indeed, Gandalf the Grey, he scoffed, for aid? It has seldom been heard of that Gandalf the Grey sought for aid, one so cunning and so wise, wandering about the lands and concerning himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not. He, what is his anger showing him, showing about him here? Um, he emphasizes Gandalf's grayness, Gandalf's title. Now, again, I can totally see how this fits, um, you know, if you want to hold the idea of the colors as merely a sign of rank, that he's emphasizing his rank as a way to emphasize that Gandalf is inferior to him, 
right? Have you indeed Gandalf the gray? Gandalf the not white, right? Gandalf the lesser than white is one way to read his emphasis on his title there, right? Um, Of course, he's emphasizing the title because he's throwing it back at him. He's echoing. um, Just as Gandalf failed to echo Saruman's communication level, right? His familiarity level, Saruman is throwing, is, is now satirically reciprocating Gandalf's level of formality, right? But he's not just calling Gandalf by his title, he is mocking him for his title, and you can hear that again in the repetition of it. Um, uh, have you indeed Gandalf the Grey? Um, yeah, Emily, I think that that's really an interesting way to think about it, that he's going to be revealing that he sees white as a beginning and he has higher aspirations, right? So being called the white, again, it's clearly not a title like Grand Master or something like that, like you are the top of the heap because he sees it only as a stepping off point, right? This is, um, he's moving on to bigger and better things than merely being the white. So again, that's why I can't see it as a sign of like, you know, obeisance by Gandalf, or else Sauron might have turned that differently, right? He doesn't say to Gandalf, You're darn right I'm Sauron in the white, right? I would think so, right? Um, glad to see you have such unaccountable and unexpected good manners, Gandalf the Grey, right? Is the way that you might expect him to retaliate if the white merely meant Mr. The Boss of Me, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but what does it, so, but, so, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he emphasizes Gandalf's title, the gray for aid. It is seldom been heard of that Gandalf the gray sought for aid. Twice he connects Gandalf's grayness with the unlikelihood of his seeking aid. Have you indeed Gandalf the Grey for aid? Right? Pairing those two, Grey and aid. It has seldom been heard that Gandalf the Grey sought for aid. He does it twice. Right? So is there... Um, is there something... I don't know that I am understanding the full subtext there. Is he saying you should have asked for aid? I mean, is he criticizing Gandalf for his independence? Which it it seems that he is, right? You should have come to me a long time ago. Um, You should have been just taking orders from me instead of wandering about the lands and concerning yourself in every business, whether it belongs to you or not. Um, also, why is he speaking about Gandalf in the third person? It has seldom been heard of that Gandalf the Grey sought for aid, one so cunning and so wise, wandering about the lands and concerning himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not. Um, yeah, yeah, um... 
sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sarcasm, I think, mocking him, um, mocking him for his formality, in part, right? To speak of someone in the third person is an extremely formal way to talk to them, right? Um, It has seldom been heard of that Gandalf the Grey sought for aid. Um, There's a great exaggeration, a sarcastic exaggeration of Gandalf's formality. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Notice the same... He's... Again, with what sounds like sarcasm, um, he is speaking of Gandalf in the third person in order to praise him, right? One so cunning and so wise, wandering about the lands and concerning himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not. just had a thought. What if the title... We've been noticing that in all the references to the wizards, there seems the implication that the wizards are responsible for areas of academic study. Right? Saruman with the ring lore and studying the devices of Sauron. Um, Radagast with his birds and beasts and his changes of shape and hue. What if that's what the title means? What if being the white means you are the chief enemy of Sauron, and it is your job to study his devices and understand him in order to help the rest of the world contest and defeat him? And so in emphasizing his title of the Grey here. He is emphasizing what Gandalf should be doing. I don't know what that is, but he's emphasizing what Gandalf should be doing, and then going on to emphasize that he is not doing it. Or rather, he's exceeding his remit. Right? He's wandering about the lands concerning himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not. The implication is there is some business that belongs to Gandalf. I don't know what, Exactly. But Gandalf is not staying inside his boundaries. Um, yeah, fireworks, perhaps. Yeah. Um, uh, now, Sam, just because Saruman is the king of neglecting his role does not mean that he would not criticize Gandalf for neglecting his role. Right. Uh, in fact, if my experience in academic politics has taught me anything, it is that uh, people are most likely to come down most harshly on their colleagues for things of which they are guilty themselves. Um, uh, the people who are most 
harsh on junior colleagues on a tenure committee are most harsh about their publication records when they come up for tenure are the people who have published least. That is almost always true. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, as Valori says, accusation is often a form of confession. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, and the best way to deflect from your own faults is to point out someone else's. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yes, the, yeah, I think uh, the, the, in fact, the very fact that he's criticizing Gandalf about uh, going outside his boundaries is perhaps a little suggestive, right? Um, yeah, so Freebird is speculating. Um, Freebird is speculating that um, it, Gandalf is doing his business, and the Grey means he is to work behind the scenes and know things, so Saruman is insulting the very position. I wonder... That word belongs is important. Um, uh, whether it belongs to him or not. Doesn't that seem like a very conspicuous word? Again, the implication is there is business that belongs to Gandalf. Presumably as the Grey, right? Whatever his area is. Does Gandalf exceed his remit? Does he concern himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not? I believe it. I believe it. I don't know exactly what his remit is. I mean, again, we can we can draw some conclusions, but what does Saruman think his remit is? You know, what's like the the formal job description of the Grey? Um, yeah, Turnbar is wondering if the quest of the Hobbit belonged to him or not. Great question. Yeah, I don't know. Um, if I had to guess, just like, if I had to draw a conclusion from this paragraph as to what the job of the Grey is, right? That would be a hard chore. But, if I were um, uh, if I were guessing that there are two things three things three things that he emphasizes Saruman, three things that come up one, his reluctance to seek for aid or the infrequency with which he has sought for aid his independence, that's one thing that he brings up second, his wandering about the lands that's the other thing that he brings up. And the third um, is... Uh, what was the third thing? There's no third thing. Um, uh, I guess the word business? Which, again, suggests to me that there is some business that belongs to him appropriately. Um, Inasmuch as he is criticizing him for wandering about the lands, 
There I do think I agree with, and I'm, I'm sorry, my memory is terrible this evening about who said what. Um, somebody was... Uh, was it Ambrosius Aurelianus? I'm not sure. Who was suggesting that Gray, that he's making fun of the title of the Gray, period. Right? Not just saying, Gandalf, you're doing a crappy job of being the Gray. But, like, this whole Gray shtick is, is uh, you know, useless and embarrassing. Um, I get the impression that wandering about the lands is indeed part of the remit of the Grey Wizard. Um, my guess would be that even his independence um, might be not unconnected with his grayness, right? That there's a certain amount of... Um, uh, <laughs> Karina, yeah. Gandalf's business is everyone's business, like Rachel Lind. Yeah, except on a continental level. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Rachel Lind on a continental level. That's a scary, scary thought, isn't it, Karina? Sorry, Anne of Green Gables reference, for those of you who don't get it. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, um... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Curtis says, Gandalf's card says, my business is your business. That's a little better, it's a little less creepy than saying your business is my business, right? But, um, um, <laughs> yeah, I like it. Um, also, I do fireworks <clears throat> and grandfather's parties. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, let's see. This would imply we know very little about wizardly politics because we know so little about wizards. We're just meeting Saruman. We've known Saruman for half a page and we've met Radagast for another half a page, right? So, um, and that's all we know about the politics of the wizards. But, <laughs> fearlessly drawing conclusions from those two half pages, um, Gandalf appears to be... Saruman has identified Gandalf as his most serious threat. That I feel fairly confident in concluding for several reasons, right? First, because it's Gandalf that he ensnares. He doesn't bother to ensnare Radagast. He doesn't hold Radagast prisoner. He doesn't even see. I mean, he doesn't even like try to convert Radagast. Radagast is clearly, in Saruman's eyes, a non-factor. Um, Gandalf, however, appears to be a threat. Enough of a threat that he's going to bring him in and try either to convert him or to imprison him at the very least. He needs to take Gandalf out of operation. And he need, he wants information from Gandalf as well, of course, as we will also hear. Um, but um, um, if the remit of the Grey Wizard is to wander about the lands and concern yourself in at least many 
businesses, right? Perhaps not all the businesses, but here, Matt, I agree with you. Um, I think that it this could be a statement, a more specific statement about academic turf um, than it is just about Gandalf's general nosiness. Um, as Matt says, if Gandalf is supposed to wander about and inspire the free people and give them a little nudge out the door, that's one thing. Um, if he is wandering around looking into the ring of power, that means that he is on Saruman's academic turf. Exactly. Exactly. Um, if Gandalf and Saruman has some reason to think that he has been, if Gandalf has been tampering in ring of power related researches without consulting him, Saruman, that's a turf issue. That is certain, whatever business may or may not belong to Gandalf. That is the business that certainly does not belong to Gandalf. That is Saruman's job. And this, of course, would be another way then to understand his emphasis on the word gray. Have you indeed Gandalf the gray? Wait, yeah. Whose job is it to, you know, follow leads about rings of power? Yeah. Oh, wait, that's the white wizard's job, isn't it? The white wizard is supposed to be looking into the designs of the enemy and attempting to thwart him and understand his rings of power. Not the gray wizard. And certainly not the gray wizard with no consultation with the white wizard. And that, I think, would explain why he is emphasizing the connection between gray and and aid, right? Um, have you indeed for aid? Wait, wait, hang, hang on. You're consulting me? You've come to me to consult me? about? Let me make sure I'm sitting down, right? Um, why are you starting now, Gandalf? Oh, Gandalf, who is not, has not been consulting me when you absolutely should have been doing and you know it, Right? When you have not only not been seeking my aid, which I might have given you um, in your researches, you didn't have to go to Minas Tirith. You could have just come to me. I'd already done the Minas Tirith research, right? Um, but um, um, he not only didn't come to him for aid, he didn't even tell him. He has been concealing it. From Saruman. This is a big deal. Um, this is a big yes, as Lincoln says, hell hath no fury, like an academic whose colleague has just encroached on his turf. Yes, yes. Um, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, that's um, that paragraph is making a lot more sense in that context. Um, again, not that he's emphasizing Gandalf's inferiority to him by calling him the Grey, but emphasizing... Ga Wait, what was your job description? Oh, yeah, yeah, your job... So in the course of doing your job, which I'm going to describe slightingly as wandering about the land and concerning yourself in things, right? And I'm going to do that in the context of an, an exaggerated and sarcastic, so cunning and so wise compliment, right? Um... 
But you've been doing this. You've not been seeking for aid. You've been crossing over into my turf. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that, I think, is the point of his emphasis there. That makes so much more sense. Um, and, of course, also explains why Gandalf is a threat. It's not just because of Gandalf's strength, right? But if Radagast is no threat because he doesn't leave Markwood, right? I mean, what's Radagast going to know? What's Radagast going to do, right? I mean, Radagast isn't any threat but Gandalf. Gandalf is a threat in several ways. He's a threat because he is one of the people who is most likely to find out about Saruman's treachery. He is also the one who is most likely to find out the truth of his lie about the Ring of Power. We know that Saruman has been looking for the Ring of Power himself. Um, If there is anyone on Middle-earth who is likely to have found it before him, it's Gandalf. It's the one whose job it is to wander about the lands and concern himself in all kinds of business, right? If anyone has their ears to the ground and might have found out where the ring is, it's Gandalf. But how is Saruman supposed to play that, right? How is Saruman supposed to... I mean, if Gandalf won't take him into his confidence, how can he know? Because he can't ask him. Right. He's already he's already emphasized that um, uh, he's already emphasized that Gandalf, um, you know, that uh, that the ring is gone. Right. He's already he's already laid that down. He's laid his reputation on the line in order to assert. um, Implying indirectly, I believe, even a direct revelation from the Valar. Um, Again, this that's a pretty heavy gamble. I mean, that's a, as far as your academic reputation is concerned, you're really pushing all your chips to the middle of the table there when you make your declaration about the one ring being rolled down the river to the sea. He's already done that. He can't go back on that. He can't go to Gandalf and be like, by the way, in the admittedly unlikely event that you hear any rumors that the one ring has not, in fact, rolled down the river to the sea, you will let me know, won't you? That's a good chap, right? He he can't say that. He can't say that because he has... um, he has eliminated that possibility. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, it wouldn't only be too humbling. Um, and I agree, Kurtzimus, it would be rather a difficult, a challengingly humble posture for Saruman to adopt at this particular point in his moral trajectory. I agree with that. Um, but it would also, it also, it's not just that, he can't, like, he's backed himself into a corner there. Um, he cannot possibly let on to anybody that he thinks there's even the possibility that um, the Ring of Power is still in circulation. Because if he does... Everyone is going to suspect. How could he possibly say what he said if he thought that was a possibility? I mean, it's it would be like a, a you know a scholar admitting that he fudged the data, right? I mean, that is what he would be admitting. In fact, right, that in his most important and influential publication of all time, uh, he was fudging his data. He was just making stuff up, right? He can't say. I mean, he can't say that. Um, 
So, um, and I mean, it was worth it. It was a risk. It was a calculated risk that he had to take um, because only by taking that risk could he then clear the way for him to search and find and master the ring himself. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. All right, good. I, can I just say, this has been a wonderful experience. We only got through one slide tonight, but I had never, if you've been listening to my podcast for a long time, you'll have heard me, you know, make the comparison between wizard colors and karate belts before, and you will have heard me express my skepticism that that concept of color as equal to hierarchical rank seems to me unsatisfying. Um, insufficient to really capture everything that seems to be wrapped up with those um, with those titles. But if you've been listening to my podcast for a long time, you will know that I never have given a satisfactory alternative reading because I've never really had one. Um, I've never I've never really gone further than saying. I don't think that's it, but I'm not sure exactly what it means. Well, I'm still not sure, as you might say. Um, you know, I still haven't actually thrown the ring into Frodo's fireplace yet, but um, uh, but I no longer doubt my guess. Uh, you know, but, but I um, uh, this is the first time I've ever come to a reading of those titles that seems to me satisfying. That seems to me to be a sufficient, a superior reading. I didn't, I, 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 and I never liked that the hierarchy reading, but I didn't have a better reading to offer. Um, this works for me. Um, uh, I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, WKU fan says uh, this gives me a totally new perspective on Saruman, and actually does make me feel just a tinge of pity for him. Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, not too much, but a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely can understand things from Saruman's point of view. Um, yeah, yeah. Next week we have to figure out what the title of Blue entails. No idea. No idea. Uh, we'd have to know something about what the Blue Wizards do in order to have some idea. Um, but um, anyway. Um, okay. We're going to wrap up there. That is enough work for one evening. Goodness knows it is field trip time. Um, so, um, thanks everybody for, uh, joining us today. My Twitter feed seems to have crashed, which has happened a couple times, uh, with Periscope lately. So we'll see if they make any improvements there. Um, but anyway, um, we're going to, so we're going to shift over. Um, I don't need to say, talk about shifting over because there's nobody else to talk to. So, um, uh, those of you who would like to stick around, uh, to, uh, the Twitch feed here for the field trip, um, we will, uh, be going back to Karn Doom and continuing our, our Karn Doom archeology span there. Um, and, uh, uh, to the rest of you, thanks for joining me and good night. And I'll see you guys next week. Don't forget about the webathon this weekend, noon to midnight on Thursday, 
broadcast extravaganza, we're doing all kinds of fun things um, from the really important uh, glimpse, of, you know, a, 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 a sort of a preview of the PATH program, two PATH mini courses that we're going to offer, uh, Signum PATH, and the um, uh, State of the University address. And then, of course, we're going to do lots of fun things from trivia content. Oh, and we're going to be announcing the winners of our uh, creative writing contest and doing some readings and talking about a fun new creative writing program that we are uh, planning to launch soon. So that's going to be fun. Um, all kinds of things going on on Saturday. So I hope you will. Uh, I hope you will join me for that. So, again, that's going to be just come to the Twitch channel simplest thing to do and there'll be information here there'll be a web page as well uh with full information but you can come here noon on saturday the 17th and you'll learn all about it um and don't forget that i'm also doing on thursday night my signum university who we are uh talk right where i go through and explain in more detail uh the signum model about what makes us different and uh how and why we are uh the you know, a, a, a model for higher education for the 21st century. So, um, all right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, field trip time. All right. How are you, Valerie? Yeah. Doing all right. Yourself? Good. Good. Excellent. Glad you're back with us here. Yeah, uh, me too. Yeah. I know it's... Man, Solomon is shady. He's throwing <laughs> some serious shade. Yeah. Yeah, the snark is really interesting. You know, that that kind of um the kind of sarcasm, like the particular tone of sarcasm that Saruman uses is actually not very common. Like, you know, different kinds of irony, different sorts of shades of sarcasm happen, but that kind of just really caustic one so cunning and so wise, right, is uh is not really very common. Yeah, it goes back to our earlier theory that while the hobbits have hobbitry, the humans excel at sarcasm. Right, right. Like we're just gonna we're gonna we're just gonna pour to Tarman Sursa up, here yeah. as we as we go here. Yeah, we should talk. Yeah, talk and port, talk and yeah. port. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. We we did say sarcasm seemed to be a uniquely you know human thing because we saw it a lot from Aragorn. And yeah, and and the hobbits don't do they don't do sarcasm exactly, right? Hobbitry is it's it's a cousin to sarcasm in some ways, right? The 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 sort of giving people a hard time, um, uh, um, it's um, yeah. There's like, more there's more joy and more wordplay in hobbitry. Yeah, that one of the lines that I think of. So, like on the one hand, um, I, I think about the line from the film, right? When, um, oh. when Pippin in the movie delivers the line about needing someone of intelligence for the party, yes, right, yes. Um, when Mary in the film turns to him and says, "Well, that rules you out, Pip," right? Yes. Um, like the concept is right. Like that kind of banter is the right sort of idea, but the tone is wrong. That's not how hobbits do it. It's not exactly how yeah. hobbitry works. It's too blunt. Yeah. It's too, um, uh, you know, like the way that hobbitry works is the crack that Mary makes about um, Frodo not really being a brandy buck, right? 
when yes. Uh, when yes. he says like uh, you know when when she says that you know you're not a Baggins you're a Brandy Buck and uh, and then Frodo says that was an insult if you like and and Mary says it was a compliment. That was a compliment. Uh, so therefore it's not. And true. therefore of course not true, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the tone of hobbitry, and that's not sarcasm. Right. Like, no, sarcasm is not used there. He's not saying one thing and meaning the opposite. Right. It's it's more yeah. it's more indirect. Um, yeah. We, that PG Wodehouse banter back and forth, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Which I think it's partially uh, modeled on. I mean, Wodehouse, I think, is a an influence as an underrated influence on Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, even Hobbit names are very are very PG Wodehousey. Um, uh, but, um, yes, yes. Yeah. Bungo, bingo. I can see Wooster talking about, oh, Baggins. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good old Bungo. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's got a wire from Bungo the other day. They're just like nicknames, you know, that, uh, yeah. College names. Yeah. That Wooster would, you know. Yeah, exactly. Of course, we do know, like, most of them are, like, these really old medieval things as well. Right. Sure. Exactly. But it's, uh, but yeah, the tone. Anyway, um, I I agree. But yes, uh, Gandalf does use sarcasm. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, but not like Saruman does. I mean, that kind of, um, as Cook of Wooten Minor says that the, the the it's really arrogant sarcasm that uh, mocking pageantry. It's like yeah, yeah. Wow. The the wow, the, guys. the really sarcastic third person there. I mean, that's uh, um. He's it's it's like he's monologuing before he's even the villain. There's a, yeah. There's a kind of there's a kind of scorn to it. Um, yeah. that is different. So yeah, I get Gandalf uses sarcasm. I, I, um, um, uh, though, yeah, again, even that, the, the, the sort of the tone doesn't really, um, yeah, it's, get captured. Yeah. Um, it's different than Striders who, who's, who's our, aren't quite as mean spirited and it's different than Legolas's, which comes off as more whining. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, it, that'll be interesting to watch as we go yeah, further yeah. into the fellowship. Um, the is open for sarcasm, guys. Yeah, yeah. As opposed um, to Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, this is the courtyard where we started last time. So we got Uragarth down the hill. Where I lost it. Down the hill. I lost the hill. Where's, uh-huh. I keep going past it. There it is. Okay, there's Uragarth down there. Now, we were noticing that Uragarth is almost all old structure right that was one thing and so when we came up here last time my first reaction was oh look there's the old stone right there's the old walls and i was like okay that's great and then then there's some of the some new stuff built on top it looks like right and then over here we have this new wall so i was like okay so is this like a new partition like the other two sides of this courtyard are old I'm like, did they throw up this partition? I don't know. But then look what happens when we get around the corner. We come around the corner. See, here's an old, the old stone facade and the old black and white wall. Beautiful, shiny new cage there. Yep. Yeah. And then as we go around the corner here, we get, it's all old or it's all new rather. This Uh whole courtyard is new, except for. These stone, like old churchy looking buildings that we originally yes, saw yes. in the courtyard by the Iron Gate. Um, mm-hmm. 
so we've got this and no other evidence of of the oh. really oldest layer of architecture here. The rest of it's all new, the even with the brown rusty. Yes, yes. Now we went through the gate up here. Well, look at this guy's armor. I just love the crest. You know, like yeah. Don't go for subtlety, man. If you can find, you know, an eight-foot feather to put on your crest, you do it. You just it's own like a it. Tour I guide, say. so the other orcs don't get lost. Right, you know? right. And we're walking. We're walking. <laughs> it... Sorry, I was just. Yeah. Are these growing out of yeah. refuse? So there's actually, like it, like trees, growing out of the trash piles over here. Carnivorous trees. Yeah, quite possibly. That's interesting. Anyway, so we had just gotten to this courtyard last okay. time. Okay. And I was trying to figure it out. Because... Oh, fish hooks. Lots of fish hooks. That's the first thing, right? And those seem to all be new. Like with these, these fish hooks, there's no... I don't see any evidence that they're old. They're a little chipped around the side, but they're all shiny and new. Um... Notice the difference between the brown metal at the top and also the difference between the blacker metal. Um, certainly the blacker metal that was at the top of the older walls, which we can't see any of from here. Looks like it's made out of the same metal as the gate and some of the spiky. Yes, yes. I agree. I agree. Um, so so that layer, the all the gray fishhook metal in here, I am willing to take this as a an indication of a more recent layer, right? If we take mm -hmm. these, if we associate these fish hooks as we've been associating them with the new sorcery of the new Angmar, which is perhaps what is blasting the sky, which is kind of a, you know, a, a prototype model, right? Of the dawnless day. Yeah. Experimenting in out of the way Angmar where let's face it, nobody's going to really notice anyway. Um, <laughs> And yet we can, you know, create this, uh, um, we can create this atmosphere. <laughs> Someone was just shooting right over my head. I'm like, whoa, who are we shooting at? Um, uh, yeah. So, but again, no old, or almost no old stone. There do seem to be some of those churchy buildings left over. Where did I see it? Over yeah, here. Yeah, it looks like these buildings are as old as the rust on the walls. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it seems like we are entering into that area or that kind of area, um, that we were seeing from, from the, from the scenic overlook, um, yeah, where we new, were seeing nothing but new stone. Are. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're still in suburbs, right? We haven't actually entered the gates of Carndoom. I mean, I, I don't know. I, it looks like we're not in it yet. Bist of course, we have no mini-map. I feel a grievance. I really yeah. want a map of Karn Doom. Not only because it would be useful, but because I love the detail maps. Detail, the detail maps in Lotro are one of my favorite Lotro things. Um, yeah. But um, anyway, um, from the big map, which is all we get, the Angmar map, um, it still does kind of look like we're on the perimeter here. Yeah, early days still. Oh, yeah, because look, here's the entrance, I guess. 
Yeah. Is this is appears this to be the instance. Is, what is this? Looks like. I don't know. But before I go in, I'm looking through. Oh, yeah, it's it's proper Karn Doom. Okay, there's, if that's proper Karn Doom. Well, from the outside, through the shimmery portal, uh-huh. it's looking like all old stone. Yeah. Or new stone again. Darn, I keep saying the wrong thing. It's looking like <laughs> all, all new stone. Though the black, it's not, well, but it's got the brown t- top towers, the rusty towers as it's well. Got some vines on them. Yeah. Now, of course, when I say new stone, we're still talking likely hundreds of years old, but not, yes. um, not from pre, you know, 1975. Yeah. Before the fall of the Witch King. Mm-hmm. And the end of disco. Exactly. Uh, it is an instance. Yeah. You want to save that for next time and just look around the perimeters for now? Well, let's see if there's anything else we can see. We might do that. Let's see if there's anything else that we can see around here. I kind of stopped. I entered this courtyard and stopped last time. Um, These uh, spaces are fun. Yeah, I was just going to say the yellow business, like the like yellow sort of almost gemstone looking things. Yeah. Around are sort of interesting. Especially interesting is the fact that that pattern the sort of Y and then the two smaller Ys mm-hmm. reminds me of. Hang on. It reminds me of the doors and windows in the churchy buildings. Let me see if I can find one. There yeah, was one was, the, yeah, I was just thinking. I want to do a comparison with those Ys to see if that's the same. Over here on the left, as I oh, recall. Check out these, yeah, look at these windows over the overpass as well. Oh, yeah, here's one. Oh no, trapped by a fence. Nope, no, I'm not remembering right. They don't have just the ones. Just the gothic shape. Yeah, no, just the gothic no shape. Yeah, it's not the same. These triangle things, and we do have oh, the arches within arches. Yeah. There. No, but not the Y shapes. Okay. Nope. Right. Oh, there's some more stuff on this way too. Yeah. Um, was there was nothing else uh, up and to the left in that courtyard? Those are both dead ends. The stairs that go up on the sides on that courtyard, they're both dead uh, ends, right? Um, I haven't been in this part yet. I think. Let me. Let me. Let me go. Let's go. I think they are. If so, then. Uh, um. I, well, I know there's other doors over there. Yeah, there's other gates and things, but I think they're. Yeah, I don't think they're actionable. They dummy doors. They're dummies, yeah. 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 Oh, look, and here's one of those doors right here. So. Oh, here's a ramp. There's a ramp over here. A ramp. Wait, where are you? Oh. Uh. Over around the corner? No. Just lean to uh, near the near the near where we came in. Oh, up there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't see that at all. Right. Typical. Uh, oh, this is sneaky. Metal waffle weave industrial ramp. Yep, just like the ramp up to the original iron yes. gate. Oh, oh wow. this is this is this is where the secret path took us last time. This is where the secret path took us. Right. 
There's the secret path. Right. Yeah. Got it. We got our drums and our. Okay, so we have a shortcut to here. Next time we want to come this way, we'll take the secret path. Yeah. Okay. Now, who are these people? Um. Let's take a look. This is. Ms. Fire Nomad Provisioner Nomad Ms. The Supplier. She doesn't look nomadic. Like, she's not dressed like the... She looks like a ranger. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. More vaguely ranger-ish. She needs a good pair of boots. She looks like she's got cloth wrapped around her feet. A little ironic for her to be selling supplies, if you ask me. Well, remember, she also gives money for things, so maybe she's waiting on a pair of boots. Right. Also looks like her hands are severely chapped. Maybe she's wearing gloves. I hope she's wearing gloves. Hands shouldn't be that color. No, they really shouldn't. Quick orc Oh, hands. look, here's a little purse rack. Everybody's purses. A purse rack? Where do you see a purse rack? Right here where I'm standing. Oh, 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 hanging on the thing. I see. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. Don't you keep your purses on something like this? Right, yeah. Well, you've got to have a little uh, little crossbeam. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. Hooks, yeah. hooks for purses. Incredibly important on everything. You don't want it to touch the floor. There you go. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, nomad healer. And you've got these little rush mats. Does it does it, the nomad healer only heal nomads? Uh I think he himself is nomadic, which is why he looks like he's from one of the tribes we've seen. Right. But the supplier is not. She does look Dunedine, doesn't she? Yeah, she really does. I also have we've my seen suspicions. precious little there there is some Dunedin um peop um presence here just yeah. sort of spotted here and there yeah that hairnet definitely doesn't look nomadic to me that's a yeah snood mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah i had one from when my mom had a convertible it's a snood yeah it's called a snood really that's what it's called yes yeah, what it's called a snood i kid oh. you not all right i i i've learned something i did not know about <laughs> snoods Okay. Everybody nudes a snood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, that is a sword that means business, by the way. Good grief. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like these little... Right. No, you've got your little weenie here. swords. Then you've got your, like, big old Japanese anime sword there. Um, <laughs> also, these... It's not got a gun in it, does it? <laughs> <laughs> these, these drums are... Also interesting. I don't remember seeing drums like this before. Yeah, look at the designs on there. Yeah, the swirly design is is how many set? A little different. I don't remember. How many sides is that? One, two, three, four. It's an octagonal. An octagonal drum. drum? Yeah. Do the corners make it sound better? I don't know. It make it easier to make, presumably. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. I'm not good at geometry. <laughs> Here we go. 
There we go. Frumius Bujum is just confirming the definition of the word snood, which yeah. I, I think I not only did not know what that word meant, I believe that I have lived every year of my life to this point without ever hearing that word uttered in my presence before. I learned it at a Ren Fair when I bought one. Like I said, my mom had just bought a convertible and I had hair that went down to my butt. So, so you yeah. can imagine how much fun that was. Right. So right. then I got one and mom kept calling it a hairnet and calling me Lunch Lady Doris. And I'm like, no, it's a snood. It's a snood. Got it. Yeah. Very different from hairnet. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think it can, I don't think it, uh, conforms to OSHA standards for one thing. I see. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I'm glad you found this ramp because I was wondering when we were going to, oh, I almost just ran straight off the ramp. Um, yeah. It really should have a safety rail Again, over OSHA. there. OSHA violations. It is everywhere. not up to code. Um, uh, Goblins Union are going to have a meeting. Yeah. Absolutely. But now, because I'd been wondering, like, when we were going to find the outlet to the to the secret passage. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad we found it there. Okay. So now coming into this other area down the other way, we're descending. We're in this like gully area. The bridges are new ish as we would expect. It is just a pit. It's just awful all over the place. It's like a trash pit, but they only just got started. And, and the road goes straight through it. Yeah. But okay. Um, so this is just litter then? I guess. Like they were just eating while they were walking around here and they just left it. Okay, see? So I'm revising a theory here. This is the second okay. time that we have seen one of these churchy like facades and I call them churchy because of the gothic windows I think is why and also the the patterning in the windows looks almost like stained glass but except it's not glass um got a steeple on the gable roof yeah yeah so um anyway this sort of gothic facade this is the second time we've seen one of these gothic facades sticking out of what is clearly a newer wall with the newer stone and the rusty metal rather than the old but we've seen these same facades in several places especially up by Uragarth. yeah and and sticking out of the old black and white walls you know the oldest Mm -hmm. clearly the oldest layer of uh, of construction there um so i'm as i'm kind of revising my theory here my theory was that the this these structures were contemporaneous with the old walls but I think not. I think they can't be. I think that they're newer um, and that they've been built on to the old walls in the other places where we see them. Um, so how deep are they then? How deep do they I go? don't know. I, not not deep. I mean, it's almost flush to the wall. Like this, this has to, this door has to open on chambers that go into this. I mean, unless it's, you know, like a broad, like width wise, a full, but then like in depth, it's just a tiny house, you know. I mean, it only goes back like six, it, ten it feet. Is a gate, it, it goes back to it is a gatehouse because you have room for an observation sort of lounge and you have a place for someone to sleep and maybe a very small kitchen. Perhaps. And then these wooden awnings are added to it, weirdly. Yeah, those, those don't match the other ones we've seen. 
No. Kind of implies someone's going to be standing around here all day trying to get out of the weather. Right. Exactly. Like someone's on, which again would, if it were guard duty, right? Like those are guard posts that modern yep. guards are, are, are having to man. And so therefore they've built these little wean twos for the benefits of, you know, whatever orcs or trolls who stand here. Um, mm-hmm. These doors are very ornate. They're not very big. They don't look like gates exactly. I mean, they go in for big gates around here, like the big yeah, old, do. you know, iron gates. But yeah. for them to be like gatehouses, except door houses, right? Let's call them door houses. Okay. Instead of gatehouses, or like unto gatehouses, but not. So. Mm. All right. So I find myself. Oh, yeah, see, there's a guy sitting under the awning right there, actually. He just popped up. Oh, right. Yeah, he just, he just uh, yeah, respawned he just, yes, under, the under the awning. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. That confirms the theory. Um, okay, so, hmm. Sorry. It makes me wonder, is there any chance that the old black and white walls, which I've been associating from the beginning with old Angmar, is there a possibility they could predate old Angmar? Is there a possibility? Because, see, basically, with all of the interior of Karndoom being this newer stone, mm-hmm. I mean, there's only two possible ways to explain that. One is that Karndown, Karndoom um, burned down, fell over, and then sank into the swamp, and then they, re- <laughs> they built an entirely new... like So recently, within the last yeah. hundred years, they have built a brand new Karndoom. Thus, all of this is new on the site of the old Karndoom, which was either magically destroyed because it was somehow magically linked to the Witch King, but he wasn't destroyed, so how would that work? I can't see that happening, right? So I can't yeah. see... Wibbly-wobbly, magic-y-ragic-y. <laughs> right. But, of course, it's also possible that Aarnur was thorough... Right, and sent a team of Gondorian engineers to level the place. Um, you know, sent a team of Gondorian engineers, you know, with a great deal of gunpowder and pent up frustration, uh, to destroy all of uh, you know, Karn Doom and raise it to the ground, you know, Scipio Africanus style. Um that oh, okay, Tarkrid. Jailer. So somebody starts attacking you, and then you just come over and take it out on me. So speaking of pent up aggression, just like I was saying. Yeah, seriously. Um, so uh, I love this guy who's attacking this other dude over here, who's just ignoring him. Yeah, like you know, he just uh, just a guy yelling at a wall over here. Right. Yeah. Uh, Sumer Lithi over there was just like utterly unaffected, okay, so, like the or couldn't even yeah. injure him. It was it was pretty futile. Um, but okay, anyway, so they leveled the city. Yeah. So okay. either. Either Aarnor did his best Scipio Africanus impression and ordered Karn Doom leveled, and then recently, when they moved back to Karn Doom, um, you know, or tried to move back to Karn Doom when they set up, you know, when Mordorith came back up, which of course is ironic. Spoilers, right? If Aarnor ordered the destruction of Karn Doom for Mordorith to come back and reassemble Karn Doom is ironic and funny. Um, and I admit that the irony of that theory makes it very appealing to me. But 
The other possibility, of course, is that this is this is old Carn Doom, that this is what Carn Doom looked like, um, mm. which would mean that the black and white walls that we've been seeing actually predate Carn are from an older strata of building that the Witch King himself inherited. So when the Witch King moved in, there already had been someone here who had built walls. And he used some of those, like, you know, so Urugarth, we still see a lot of that sitting around. So out in the outskirts and stuff. But Doom, the city that he himself built, um, was... um, uh, is this newer stone. So, the, but the black and white buildings were pretty, they're, they're pretty advanced though. They had like flushed stones mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, yep. and of course the, the purple metal working and stuff. I don't know if that comes with no, it. Or it I agree. And like, like that. pseudo or quasi Numenorean um, construction, like it looked like, you know, sort of Numenorean construction um, at least as good yeah. as the Angmarim, and not the Angmarim. At least as good as the, at least as good as the Arnorian walls that we see ruins yeah. of all around Bree, right? Yeah, but would that be like lost technology then? Like the Hillmen used to live in these big, glorious sort of apartment blocks. I can't imagine it. I mean, who were the Hillmen? I mean, how would the Hillmen have that technology? Even if they, I mean, that they had declined from a glory day of old is, of course, perfectly possible in Tolkien's world. But how would they get such technology? That doesn't seem to fit. I'm I'm, I'm looking at the map, and I'm backing up from the map, because I'm trying to... I'm trying to imagine the role of Angmar. Of course, Angmar became Angmar, right? That is, the Witch King moved here and started causing a fuss. In the middle uh-huh. of the Third Age, right? It's a really recent thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So which, there, which does imply there were men living here, since we knew men were all over this place. Sure, exactly. So the Hillmen doubtless were here for a long time. My question is, I'm, I'm looking at the map and I'm trying to cast my mind back to, like, Second Age, right? Second yeah, Age, yeah. First Age, even. Um, who might be expected to live here? Ancient oh. civilizations that could significantly predate, um, uh, predate Angmar. Now, Katriana, I agree. The rift does show that the elves were around and had been around for yeah, a long I time. I yeah. agree with that. The walls don't strike me as particular. The black and white walls don't strike me as particularly elvish. It's possible, but. Yeah. I, I could believe dwarves before I believed elves, I think. Um, doesn't match any dwarven stuff either, though. No, it doesn't look convincingly dwarvish, but it looks more dwarvish than it does elvish, but it doesn't really look yeah. either one. It yeah, looks to me a little more bit more Numenorean. Decoration. Well, the... Yeah, all, all the old uh, elvish stuff is usually lying in runes all over there, but the dwarf stuff is still standing tall. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hang on a second. Emily says, wait, the story of the rift is that the wizards and elves imprisoned Tharlach there? The wizards. So the imprisonment of the Balrog was a third age event in the rift? Huh. Whoa. Wow. Whoa. 
That's weird. It's a bit far from here, though. It is. I mean, it's local only in the sense that it's closer than, say, Rohan, right? I mean, it's not, like, immediately right next to Karndoom. But, um... True, but we are closer to the Blue Mountains. Right, but also don't forget that going, um... Going back to the... Even just the map of Angmar here, um, we saw some of those black and white walls in other places. Like we saw it down here in what Bile Balglach, the nor- north of the Malenhad, the the city north of the Malenhad and south of the Imlad Balhorth. Um, hmm. And we saw some of the black and white walls in the Imlad Balhorth as well, didn't we? In some places. True. So yes. that is, we've seen it outside of Karndoom. It's not just in Karndoom. Yeah, I want to go back to Enuminous. I want to go back to Enuminous and see if this stuff's here. I don't remember anything like it in Enuminous. Um, yeah. I don't think there's anything uh, like it in Enuminous. But, because, yeah, so, if it predates the Witch King, like, we just roll with that theory for now, if it predates the Witch King, who are candidates? Well, okay, again, elves, as we're pointing out, elves are involved in the rift, so they're a theoretical candidate, though it doesn't look like them. The dwarves are around. We know the dwarves are here in Angmar, so that they're also a theoretical candidate. Also, again, when you look at the big map, you can see that Angmar isn't so far off the Misty Mountains, right, where the Longbeards lived, so it makes a certain amount of sense that they have some, like, a trading outpost over there, which is what we saw um, down in southern Angmar. Um so, okay, they're candidates. Um, Arnor, right? I mean, theoretically, it could be an Arnorian um, place, People. right? I mean, Arnor was established 2,000 years before the downfall of the Witch King. Um, and, you know, like a 1,000 years or more before the Witch King himself, about a 1,000 years before the Witch King showed up. Um Right, JJ's thinking about Hillman using techniques learned from the Numenorians, and that's possible. Uh, it's possible. I'm still dubious. It's I did want to say Arnor, though, because remember all the things we've seen in Mockery of the White Tree? Maybe they weren't in Mockery, because that, that was always where we had the black and white buildings. We right. always had those big courtyards, and we always had those skeletons of white trees. Right. Right, maybe the withered white trees are actually honest homages that remain... That just died. Right, yeah. They're just dead former trees. It's possible. It's just so different from any other Arnorian construction we've seen that I, I'm skeptical. Um, but if I'm pushing it back past the Third Age entirely, back, like, is there a Second Age civilization that could have set up up here? I don't know who it could have been. It's a real mystery. Hmm. Yeah. Well. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, I'll keep thinking about it. Yeah. How old is the Mount Gundabad settlement? Frumius Bujum, I'd be really interested to see um, Mount Gundabad. Has that been released yet? I heard rumors about Mount Gundabad, but that's not come out yet, has Soon- it? Soonish. Soonish? Soon. 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 Right, okay. So... It's not just me. Of course, my approach to Gundabad would probably be less soon. But um, how many expansions am I behind? I'm just about to enter Mordor. A so few. 
five expansions no, no, behind? No, you're starting Mordor. We've only had Minas Morgul. And then, officially, the next expansion is coming up soon. And right. then there's an actual expansion, uh, a full-on expansion in the spring, which is the Gundabad one. But you can see the gates of Gundabad with a new one coming up. Okay. Cool. Okay. No, but there's, like, I've also missed the whole, like, Erebor region in Northern yeah, Merkwood. expansions, though. But, yeah, they're okay. updates. Updates. Really good. Areas. Anyway. Whatever. Point is, I'm way behind. Um, and uh, they're yeah, actually cool. managing to produce the game faster than I'm managing to play through it. So, that <laughs> tells you something about me and something about them, I suppose. Something about adulthood, too, I guess. I guess, yeah. Okay. And this whole running university thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, yeah, I just... I can't think this is all reconstructed. I think the newer stuff has got to be old Angmar, so it's got to come from somewhere else. But from whom? Well, we'll continue contemplating this mystery. We can't solve all mysteries in one night, and it's getting late. Thanks, yeah. everybody, for joining us. We will head into... So there's there's no going through these gates, is there? Uh, is this a dead end up here? Might as well check to make sure this is a dead yeah. end. I know um, uh, one of these doors actually got labeled as a gatehouse just now. And then... Oh, it's Samoth Baal. Samoth Baal. Interesting. Big old door house inside the gateway. Okay. Oof. How rude. Yeah, indeed. Um. All right. Okay, so the only way through is the instance that we got. Can we do that from the instance finder? Uh, yeah, we can do that from the instance finder. Okay, so we'll, we'll we'll instance find we'll follow up an instance finder at next time. Um, to continue so. our explorations yep. within Karn Doom itself, downtown Karn Doom. All right, sounds good. Cool, awesome. All right, thank you everybody for joining us today, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.